From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, intraocular pressure, asymmetry, and implications. Sometimes the pressures would both go up by the same amount. Sometimes they'd go up or down by different amounts. Sometimes one would go up and one would go down. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Arthur Sitt declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. Do you enjoy the programs you hear in this podcast? Why not contribute to the conversation by calling our listener response lines? Share your expertise about an issue we've discussed by calling. In the United States, dial area code 646 8080231. That's a local New York number. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275. That's a local London number. You can also ask questions of any guest who has appeared on the podcast. Then your question will be relayed to the guest, and your question and the guest's answer will appear on the following podcast. Go ahead. Try it out. It's cool. Sometimes a fact is so inconvenient that it's just easier to ignore. And no fact is more obvious, more inconvenient, or more ignored than intraocular pressure fluctuation. We monitor pressure as if it were static, and the medication we prescribe were the only variable. Of course, We can overcome the problem of fluctuation by performing monocular drug trials because everybody knows that intraocular pressure fluctuations occur simultaneously and of identical magnitude bilaterally. When intraocular pressure in the right eye goes up 3 millimeters, the intraocular pressure in the left eye must also go up 3 millimeters of mercury at the same time. Put that way, it it sounds silly. Yet, This is precisely the assumption on which monocular drug trials are predicated. Now, this idea is being put to the test by Arthur Sitt, my guest today. Why is intraocular pressure fluctuation important? Why is it something that we should be studying? We we know that intraocular pressure is a dynamic property, and we know that it fluctuates over the course of the day, and we know it fluctuates from day to day, and that's really not something new. That's something that really Stephen Drantz told us back in the 60s, and in order to try to know if our, if our therapies are having any effect, we need to try to differentiate between what is the normal fluctuation in intraocular pressure and what is our therapeutic effect. How has intraocular pressure fluctuation been dealt with clinically? Um, what do we do clinically to attempt to compensate for it? Well, the, the most common procedure is um, the monocular therapeutic trial. And, and Really, up until very recently, that was that was what was recommended in the in the American Academy's preferred practice patterns. And um, basically, with a monocular trial, what you want to do was is uh, start a, an agent, usually a, a topical um, uh, ocular hypertensive agent, in a single eye, and then you'd bring the patient back for follow up, and you'd want to see if there's been a relative change. Uh, versus the untreated contralateral eye in the, in the ILP. So the assumption was that if you did see a relative change in ILP, that was due to the medication. And that's really the most 
common practice right now. What assumptions are inherent in monocular therapeutic trials? Uh, what, what, what premises are monocular trials based on? Well, there, there's really two basic assumptions. One is, first of all, that, that intraocular pressure does vary, and that's true. We know it does vary. But the second uh, assumption is that the intraocular pressure varies symmetrically between the two eyes. So that means is that if you're assuming that if the ILP in the right eye spontaneously goes up four millimeters of mercury, it's going to do the same thing in the left eye. And that's, that's really the uh, assumption that has come under scrutiny in the past few years. Prior to your study, what was known about 24-hour intraocular pressure fluctuation? Um, prior to uh, John Moon's work, actually, there was not a lot known about 24-hour ILP fluctuations. And a lot of the, the original background work by Stephen Drance looked at diurnal pressures. And diurnal obviously means it's done during the daytime. And he found that for most patients, they had pressures higher early in the morning and kind of dropped off over the course of the day. And uh, that seemed to be true for both normal patients and glaucoma patients. Uh, He also found that glaucoma patients had greater fluctuations in their intraocular pressure. And that kind of remained as as dogma, really, for a long time. Uh, What John Liu did, starting around the mid-90s, he started actually looking at what happens over a 24-hour period and what was done by him at University of California in San Diego was bringing in patients to the sleep laboratory, housing them there over a 24-hour period, checking their pressures every two hours under controlled conditions, and seeing what really happens over, over the 24-hour period. Can I have you describe the design of these studies? Sure. So what these two studies did was we actually went back and looked at all the data that has been collected at the at UCSD in the sleep lab over the past eight years or so. And the reason we went back and looked at it is because when the original uh, work was done that actually collected the data, the assumption was that right and left eyes behave pretty much the same. And so the data from the right and left eyes were averaged a single uh, data point. With, uh, with some of the, the more recent studies coming out, particularly by Tony Riolini, showing that this assumption of right eye being the same as left eye may not be true, uh, we went back and looked at all this data that had been collected and analyzed right versus left. So we, we took the, all the patients who had 24-hour studies done on both the right and left eye and analyzed them separately and compared the two. All of these patients, again, were, were housed at the sleep laboratory at UCSD, and they had a 24-hour study done. They all had preoperative exams done in the clinic, including dilated exams. And once we separated the right and left eye data, we compared it and compared the data over a number of different ways. First, we looked at different time categories. So we looked at... Uh, office hours, which would correspond to typical office hours of about 9 to 4. And we looked at the entire diurnal period corresponding to around 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. And we looked at the nocturnal period, which was about 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. And then we looked at the entire 24-hour period. And then we also looked at 
from that 24-hour curve, we looked at uh, different spots on that curve. So we looked at the mean over over a certain period. So again, one of those four time periods. We looked at means. We looked at peaks, troughs. We looked at ranges of ILP. We looked at change between nocturnal and diurnal ILPs. And then we correlated uh, the ILPs between the right and left eyes using primarily linear regression analysis. And from there, we were able to determine how well the the pressure in the right eye could predict the pressure in the left eye. How did these two studies differ? How did the, the subject matter for the first paper differ from the subject matter for the second paper? Well, the first paper really wanted to look at the, the healthy subjects. So there were two groups there, the younger healthy subjects who were between 18 and, and 25 years old, and then an, an older group um, between the ages of 40 and 74. And average ages for those groups were around about 22 years and about 58 years old, respectively. And the, pr- the purpose of the first paper really was to look at the association between right and left eyes in, in these healthy groups. second paper obviously looked at uh, glaucoma patients. And glaucoma patients being what they are, there was no younger group. It was really just older, older patients averaging around about 59 years old, 58, 59 years old. So the the original purpose of the two papers was really just to look at different groups, uh, but there were different results that were found looking at uh, the healthy versus the glaucoma patients. How was glaucoma defined for the purposes of this study? So for for this study, um, glaucoma could be diagnosed either based on clinical examination or based on a Humphrey visual field. So on clinical examination, they could have abnormal optic disc appearance, um, and that could include really any glaucomatous change, whether it be excavation or a rim defect like a notch, disc hemorrhage, um, nerve fiber layer defects, or a cup-to-disc asymmetry of, of, in our study, it was greater than 0.2. Or it could be based on, on visual field abnormalities on, on the Humphrey visual field. And, and from there, we used a 24-2 standard full threshold visual field. And uh, we just used the definition of abnormal as, as um, outside of 95% of the age-specific norms. What were your main outcome measures? For the, the normal study, the outcome measures that we're looking at was whether the right and left eyes were statistically significantly correlated. And secondly, whether so that was that was in terms of the linear regression portion of the study. Um, the, the second measure was looking at the difference between the intraocular pressure, the absolute difference between the intraocular pressure of the right and left eyes, and whether those differences were statistically significant. With the glaucoma paper, the, where we looked at the glaucoma patients, uh, we also used those measures. But we also did an, another analysis where we looked, where in performing the linear regression analysis, we looked at residuals. And what a residual is, is when you, when you perform a, a best fit line, that line is most likely not going to pass through all your data points. So the difference between the, uh, the predicted value and the actual value is re- your residual. So in the glaucoma paper, we looked at the 
the size of the residuals and what percentage of the residuals were greater than uh, certain cutoffs, uh, and we picked either two millimeters of mercury or three millimeters of mercury. What were the results of these two studies? What were your findings? So let's let's start with the um, the paper that looked at the normals, and with with the normal subjects, again we broke it up into to, to two groups into the the younger subjects and the older subjects. And in the, in the younger subjects, what we found was that there, there seemed to be a, a persistent difference between the, the intraocular pressure of the right and the left eye. And the, the difference was small, but it was statistically significant in a number of different categories that we analyzed. For example, looking at habitual positions, and habitual means we measured the pressure sitting during the daytime and lying down during the nighttime. So during the habitual positions, there's a statistically significant difference between the right and left eye during office hours uh, when looking at the mean pressure um, and also during looking at the uh, uh, mean pressure over 24 hours as well during the diurnal period. And this, this uh, difference between right and left eyes was also present in our in our older normal subjects as well, again, in a number of different categories. And we also looked at the 24-hour pressures with, with our subjects lying down all the time, so lying down during the day, lying down at night. And again, this difference between right and left seemed to persist in a number of different categories. The second measure that we looked at was the, the correlation between the right and left eyes. Again, what we did there was we we uh, did a, a linear regression between the right and left eyes using the, the numerous data points that were collected over a 24-hour period, and what we and then we we calculated the uh, the coefficient of determination, and, and most most people will recognize the coefficient of determination as r squared, so it's the square of the correlation coefficient, and and what that tells us is, for example, if you have an R squared of, of 1, then 100% of the variation in one eye is due to the variation in the other eye. So if you have a correlation coefficient, or if, sorry, if you have a coefficient of determination of 0.5, then only half of the variation in one eye can be explained by the variation in the other eye. And so again, for, the, for these normal subjects, what we found was that the coefficient of determination was, was moderate, um, at best. So, for example, for our younger subjects, when we took all our data points individually, what we call their single pairs, the, uh, the coefficients of determination range from about 0.3 up to about 0.68. Those are pretty moderate values, and it did improve somewhat when we looked at mean values. So with the means, we, we averaged all of the data points for each of our measurement time points. So, so we averaged everyone for 4 a.m., 6 a.m., 8 a.m., et cetera. It, it, it did improve somewhat looking at, at those values up to, and we got coefficients of determination up to about 0.8, 0.85. For the older subjects, it was, it was similar, similar findings, so really moderate coefficients of determination, but improving somewhat by looking at the means. For, for glaucoma subjects, again, we looked at those two, those two same measures, so the difference between right and left, 
and we did not find a statistically significant difference between right and left eyes for our glaucoma patients. And then when we looked at coefficients of determination, the correlation was was even poorer. So the coefficients of determination for our glaucoma patients for uh, our single-pair analysis range you know, from from about a little over 0.4 to to just over 0.5, so really quite a, a moderate association. So what this means in lay terms is is that for normal patients, depending upon the way that you look at the data, up to about 80% of the fluctuation in intraocular pressure in one eye can be explained by intraocular pressure fluctuation in the other eye, whereas with glaucoma patients, the the correspondence was much poorer, and only about half of the intraocular pressure fluctuation in one eye is attributable to pressure fluctuation in the other eye. Uh, Do I have that right? Um, almost, but 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 not quite, um, because with the with the normal patients, um, when you look at those those higher coefficients of determination, that's using the mean value, so so that's that's averaging all of the subjects in the study. So what it really says is that for this population as a whole, there's a pretty good correlation between right and left eyes. But for individual subjects, and that's using a single pair analysis for individual subjects, it's really quite moderate, even for, for the normal subjects. Just to kind of parse this out, is it that when the intraocular pressure went up in one eye, that it went up at the same time in the other eye, but not by the same magnitude? Or is it that the fluctuations themselves were just completely out of sync? It actually could do uh, either of those. Um, we, didn't, we didn't publish a, a specific analysis of that, but sometimes the pressures would both go up by the same amount. Sometimes they'd go up or down by differing amounts. Sometimes one would go up and one would go down. So there really was quite a variability in, in, in between what um, one eye was doing and what the other eye was doing. So to put this in, in a different way, the intraocular pressure fluctuations in one eye were relatively poor predictors of fluctuations in the other eye. Exactly. And that's, again, that's, um, that's what our coefficients of determination tell us, that there really is a moderate at best uh, predictability based on um, in, in trying to predict the pressure in one eye uh, based on the pressure in the other eye. And that in glaucoma patients particularly, one eye was an even worse predictor of what the other eye was doing. Exactly. Now, to the extent that it would be advantageous to us for the intraocular pressures in the two eyes to correlate so that we could do things like monocular drug trials, are there things that we can do clinically to improve the correlation in intraocular pressure between the two eyes? Right. So we did look at that for our glaucoma patients. And what we did was um, we looked at what, uh, what would happen if we, if we took all our data points that we had for each patient and got a best fit line and then tried to predict what, what the LPs were by choosing an ILP for the right eye, what would the ILP be in the left eye? And then we compared that with um, a second type of fitting where we actually fixed the slope of the line 
uh, with a slope of 1. And if you think about this, that's, that's really what we typically do in um, a monocular trial. So if we, in our monocular trials, we kind of assume that if the pressure in one eye goes up and say three millimeters of mercury, the pressure in the other eye goes up three millimeters of mercury. So we want to see if that was really true or if there was some other scale that needed to be used, some other slope that needed to be used. When you say a slope of one, what you're saying is is that we make the assumption that there's a one-to-one correspondence in intraocular pressure between uh, right eye and and left eye. Exactly, and and we we wanted to test whether that was in fact true, and if it wasn't true, if we if we abandoned this assumption and and allowed the, the the ratio between right and left eye fluctuations to vary, could we get a better monocular trial? And and we actually did find that, and we found that if we allowed the slope, this ratio to, to fluctuate, to vary, just so that we got our, our very best fit of data, we found that we could significantly decrease the size of our residuals and the number of residuals greater than our specific cutoffs. So again, what that told us was that by having this true best fit through all our data points, we were, we were able to predict ILPs from one eye to the other uh, with much greater accuracy. Now, what what you're saying here, once more in, in lay terms, is that if, if you did not um, confine, if, if if you did not take as a given that there would be a one-to-one correlation uh, in intraocular pressure change between right and left eye, that you could get a, 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 a much better fit, a much better correspondence, which sounds to me like what you're really saying is, is that the right and the left eyes tended to fluctuate at the same time, but not necessarily by the same magnitude, um, meaning that if the pressure in the right eye went up, that the pressure in the left eye tended to go up at the same time, but that it was, it was difficult to predict the amount of rise in pressure in the left eye um, by, by uh, looking at what the rise in pressure in the, in the, in the right eye was. Right. That's right. So... From from our analysis, we found that, for example, um, if we got enough data points, we might find that if the if the right eye went up by three, the left eye instead of going up by three, maybe went up by two. And if if we if we had enough data points, we could we could make pretty good predictions of of what those actual ratios would be. It, it wasn't a, it still wasn't perfect though. Uh, even with our our best fit lines, there were still residuals that were larger than the cutoff values. And that may be because that the, 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 the true relationship between right and left eyes is, is not linear. And we, we just don't know what the true, the true relationship between right and left eyes is. Are the pressures of the right and left eye more similar at certain parts of the day? Uh, are, are, are they more similar during office hours? That, that's a good question, because in, in our analysis, it certainly look that way. But what you need to remember about our data is that this was data collected over over a single 24-hour period. And so certainly when you do that, when you when you take the data from a single 24-hour period and you, you pick out an eight-hour period, like the office hours, then certainly you're going to have a better correlation between right and left. Whether that actually translates into the real-life situation of having 
better correlation between right and left uh, during office hours over multiple days is, is unknown. And that's, that's an area that, that needs to be investigated. Can we improve the correspondence and pressure between right and left eye by taking multiple data points, by, by, by taking multiple intraocular pressure readings? I think so. I think, I think our data definitely shows that we can improve our, our ability to predict fluctuations between the two eyes if we get more data points. And right now, there, uh, unfortunately, are, there aren't any really good methods of collecting numerous data points. One is to do a diurnal tension curve, which by its very nature is limited to, to daytime hours. Another is just to collect multiple IOP measurements over multiple visits. But again, we run into the situation of whether or not our results over from a single 24-hour period correspond to what you would find with measurements from multiple different days. We don't know that. So really what, what, I think what we're really waiting for, what everyone's really waiting for, is a, a 24-hour pressure monitor. How do your findings compare with those of Tony Riolini? They, they actually correspond pretty well. Tony Riolini found in his, uh, his earlier study that looked at the asymmetric fluctuations between the two eyes over, over multiple office visits. He found that in his glaucoma patients, there definitely were a greater number of asymmetric fluctuations in glaucoma patients versus normal patients. And he found about 16% of, of glaucoma patients had these asymmetric fluctuations greater than 3 millimeters of mercury. And we, we compared that to our 24-hour habitual category as we thought that over a 24-hour period would have the widest range of fluctuations, which would most closely capture what you would probably see on a day-to-day basis. And we had 14% of our, our residuals greater than 3 millimeters of mercury compared with uh, Tony's 16%. It, it actually correlated pretty well. One of your findings with the normal patients was that the intraocular pressures in the right eye were higher than the intraocular pressures in the left eye. What do you make of that? And is, is that a function of the device that you use to check the intraocular pressures? It's an interesting question, and we suspect that um, at least part of it is, is simply a systematic error from us measuring the right eye first all the time. And, and we, we did measure the right eye first all the time because when, when these measurements were originally taken, we had not even considered the difference between right and left eyes. But it's, it's also possible that there's a, a, a true difference between right and left eyes. And, and there have been some conflicting reports, really, about, about whether there is consistent difference with pressures being higher in right eyes versus left eyes and whether this is related to right-handedness or eye dominance. I think it's an interesting area of speculation, but I don't think it's, it's, there's certainly no clear answer as to whether there's more to it than just a systematic error. Here's the $64,000 question, Arthur. Can we do monocular drug trials? <laughs> I think that we can. I don't think monocular drug trials are, are, are dead. But I think that the way that most of us probably did them in the past, where we had you know, maybe a, a couple of office readings, we added a new medication to one eye and brought them back and looked for a, a difference. I, I think that is a, a risky 
maneuver, and it, it's difficult to interpret the results when it's performed like that. But I, I think if we have enough data points, if we have enough measurements of, of intraocular pressure, I think we can much more accurately uh, predict what happens between right and left eyes, and we can much more accurately determine whether our monocular trial has a positive or negative result. Not to put your, your, your feet to the fire, but how many times do we have to check pressure uh, in a monocular drug trial to feel confident that we know what the difference is between the treated eye and the non-treated eye? Yeah, and that's a, that's a very good question, and, and I, I don't know the answer to that. And there's a, there's a real question that even if we were to do a, a number, if we were to get a, a pretty substantial number of data points during the daytime, whether or not that is valid for the entire 24-hour period. I don't know that, but I think at this point with our, our current technology and our current clinical practice, probably the, the best thing that we can do is, is get a diurnal tension curve beforehand and get a diurnal tension curve afterwards. And that's probably going to give us our, our best chance of, of determining whether or not a monocular trial is, is a true positive or a true negative. Your paper didn't look at this, but is, is there any evidence that there is a correspondence between pressure at 3 p.m. on Tuesday and pressure at 3 p.m. on Wednesday? Not, not that I know of. And again, that's, that's, a, that's a terrific question, and I think it's something that definitely needs to be looked at because we, we, we don't know uh, whether the circadian variations in intraocular pressure whether they stay the same from day to day. And, and you've seen from the paper and, and preceding papers how we get these, these nice circadian curves. And whether that stays the same for a particular patient from day to day to day is, is unknown. And that, that's something that does definitely need to be looked at. Now, normally, Arthur, in an interview like this, I'll have only one $64,000 question. But, but for you, I've got two. Uh, and the, the, the second one is, aside from monocular drug trials, how, how can we know what someone's intraocular pressure really is? And you, you, you have these beautiful uh, 24-hour uh, intraocular pressure fluctuation charts showing these enormous changes in pressure uh, even in, in, in normal patients, what does it mean when we check pressure in the, in the office and, and get this one sort of snapshot reading? Again, that's, a, that's another great question because right now we don't know the significance of those nocturnal fluctuations. There has been one previous paper from, um, again, from uh, University of California in San Diego looking at the correlation between office peak pressures and, and nocturnal pressures, and, and, and there was some correlation and there was some, it, it may be possible to predict what the nocturnal pressures are based on a, a supine um, office pressure measured during the daytime. But what that nocturnal pressure really means to us, we, we just don't know yet because everyone's pressure goes up at nighttime just, just from the fact that they're lying down, probably for other reasons as well. And whether that is can lead to a pathologic state, or whether that will put you at higher risk of of glaucoma or glaucoma progression, 
by having those nocturnal elevations. We just don't know right now. Last question, Arthur. Someone comes to your office uh, whom you want to put on an eye drop to lower the intraocular pressure. What do you do? What do you do in, in your own practice? In my own practice, you know, unfortunately, we're all limited by practicalities. So I think the, the best practice that we could have would be to, to get a, a diurnal pressure. You know, for my diurnal pressures, I start them at 8 in the morning and measure the pressure every two hours until about 4 in the afternoon. And I think the best thing we can do now would be to get a diurnal pressure before we start the month treatment and then then another downer pressure after we start the month treatment, giving the appropriate amount of time depending on the medication. And I would like to do that for everyone, but I just don't. It's it's simply not practical. And so often I will place them on the medication and bring them back for uh, multiple visits if necessary to see what what the true uh, fluctuation or what the true response is. I tend not to do a lot of monocular trials uh, because I, I I don't find a lot of advantage in it unless I can do it properly. Um, that properly meaning with with a diurnal curve. Arthur Sit, thank you very much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Arthur Sit is assistant professor of ophthalmology at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine in Rochester, Minnesota. His paper. Asymmetry of right versus left intraocular pressures over 24 hours in glaucoma patients appears in the March 2006 issue of Ophthalmology, and his paper, Variation of 24-Hour Intraocular Pressure in Healthy Individuals, appears in the October 2005 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Sit or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial, area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial, 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website, asseenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.